Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the state of the European Union and a budding friendship in East Asia. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well, Ethan. How about yourself? Doing just fine. John, let me ask you, do you know who John Fetterman is? Uh, wait, is this the, the Pennsylvania really tall senator guy? Yes, the enormous Pennsylvania senator. Have you have you seen pictures of his style? L- lack of, you mean? Yes, exactly. You're spot <laughs> yeah, on. Right. Hood- hoodies. I, I was just scrolling Twitter before we, we hopped on and I saw a picture of him at the French embassy in his trademark style. And, and I guess my, my question to you is, could you imagine showing up to work at your embassy in a t-shirt and shorts? Uh, well, I think you wouldn't have a job shortly yeah. afterwards, but, uh, what, do you, do we know what he was doing at the French embassy in, in a hoodie or whatever it was? I'm in? not sure. I think it must've been some sort of, no, is it Bastille day? I got, I have no clue. Well, I don't think the French yeah. would be, it's, it's not a good way to get the French on side to turn up in anything less than a, <laughs> a, a, a tightly cut suit, but yeah. It made me feel a little silly as I'm sure it will make you feel silly to have put on a polo uh, <laughs> You're overdressed. To, sit in, to sit in my closet. <laughs> Meanwhile, there are U.S. senators going to, uh, French embassies wearing uh, the most raggedy t-shirts I've ever seen. Speaking of the privilege to be a powerful person, <laughs> I mean, there, there are, you know, when you think about world leaders, not an easy job. It, yeah, it comes with perks, comes with perks. You can wear t-shirts, but your schedule is packed. You can't walk around your neighborhood unaccompanied and you've, you know, you've got to do the exhausting work of politics. And when I think of world leaders with maybe the toughest jobs of all, I might put the EU's Ursula von der Leyen on that list. Yeah, I think that would probably be a fair shout. It's a super tough gig. I mean, if you just think about the nature of the EU and and what she has to grapple with, you know, 450-odd million constituents, um, it, you know, actually the second largest democracy after India if you kind of treat it as a country. Um, but it's not a country, so... Tons and tons of states that you need to manage, lots of different um, interests, disparities between the states. Uh, and then you have to kind of manage all of those states' leaders who all think that they are the most important person in the room at any given time. So I think you're probably not far off um, in, in your shout. Uh, I think what more broadly it kind of creates a, a giant collective action problem. You know, we've talked about that a few times on the podcast um, with the EU. Um, because every problem facing Europe requires all of them to take in action and it gives incentives to, to, you know, one or two of those leaders to kind of deviate from, from the, uh, from the consensus. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, von der Leyen is also elected by European lawmakers who she has to kind of cajole every day. Um, and then she lacks a popular mandate. So yes, I would, I would say short answer, tough job. (laughs) Yeah. Well, John, bearing, bearing all that in mind, I think there is a case uh, that the the war in Ukraine represents for the EU, represents for von der Leyen, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to foster just a lot more unity in Europe. And, and I think we've seen that. Mm. And, and to develop a more coherent vision for the bloc's future. What does von der Leyen want that vision to look like? Well, she, I mean, fortunately for us, she laid it out pretty clearly in uh, her State of the European Union speech. I got to say, I, oh, that is fortunate. I, know, <laughs> I had no well, idea. Good timing, yeah. right? I was going to make sure I don't say State of the Union, but State of the European Union speech, right. uh, which was uh, on Wednesday. 
the sotiu. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't trip off the tongue, does it? But yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so she said, uh, I think, quote, she said, "We've seen the birth of a geopolitical union, supporting Ukraine, standing up to Russia's aggression, mm. responding to an assertive China." So she kind of, I mean, that's that's music to our ears. It is right, and she and she's and framing it in all the kinds of things that we we write about daily. So, um, and you know. That's not wrong. The EU's undergone this huge shift in mentality in the way it sees the world over the last kind of two years or so. Um, I think it's become aware that it's no longer content or you know able really to outsource its economic growth solely to China um, and its defense to the US. It's determined to be really sort of independent, economically dynamic, um, and more sort of more kind of able to stand on its own two feet when it comes to its security. So, I mean, let's start with the catalyst. You know, you mentioned two years ago, more specifically, it was, it was really 19 months ago uh, that that the EU started transforming into a geopolitical union. Hard to imagine it's been 19 months. But what did von der Leyen say about Ukraine? So first thing, she promised to back Ukraine for as long as it takes. And I think it's important to put a pin in that because you know, there's a lot of political toing and froing in the US about how long um, the US might back Ukraine, but she was very clear and said, we'll back Ukraine for as long as it takes. Uh, she also pledged 100 million euros to rebuild schools in Ukraine um, and highlighted plans to sort of set aside about 50 billion euros in aid, more general aid over the next four years for Ukraine. Um, I think it's kind of, she was design, she was trying to sort of design this idea of giving Ukraine um, a reliable and, and, and sort of guaranteed source of funding um, after the war or even during the war, if the war doesn't end, and help it along its path to becoming a, like a European nation, an EU nation. Um, and that was her big proposal. She wants to rapidly prepare the European bloc to expand from its current 27 members uh, to at least 30 perhaps up to 37, which means adding countries like Ukraine, Moldova, uh, and a bunch of countries over in, in, in the Western Balkans, thinking, you know, Serbia, Albania, Montenegro, those, those countries. Um, I think for von der Leyen, a faster expansion means more resources, more resources that can be sort of collected and pooled to support her big ambitions for Europe. Um, Others, of course, we, we touched on how difficult it is to wrangle all the European interests. Um, I think she's got some resistance within her within her political elite uh, colleagues. For example, the leader of the European Council, uh, Charles Michel, uh, he he thinks the EU needs to be a little bit more cautious before it expands. I'm sure those other countries in the Western Balkans that you that you didn't mention won't be at all offended. To have been excluded from that, that I couldn't list. remember them off the top yeah. of my head. Yeah, <laughs> John, what about the the next part of the, this quote that we love so much uh, about the geopolitical union, I, I, I can't wait to get a, a poster of it behind me. Um, but but <laughs> All right. what, did, what did she have to say during her speech about the EU's response to a, quote, more assertive China? Yeah, and I think if you take away one thing from her speech, it's, it's exactly those three words, more assertive China, that she mentioned it in her speech. Um, we already kind of know that von der Leyen is a bit more of a China skeptic than than others in Europe. Um, you know, French President Macron might be someone you think of when you sort of springs to mind. Yeah, well, particularly <laughs> with that that visit to China earlier in the year, where he was kind of, you know, singing singing uh, the Chinese hymns. Um, but uh, I think this speech just showed that she she's really kind of willing to call out China and push back, um, at least when it comes to things that she thinks China isn't playing fair on. 
you know, she announced that the EU would launch uh, an investigation into whether China had violated trade rules by flooding the market with their heavily subsidized electric cars. That's been making the news recently um, because China is now the world's largest car manufacturer, which is something we've always associated with, you know, Germany and Europe. According to the Chinese, uh, the South China Morning Post, that's the paper in Hong Kong, um, Chinese customs data actually showed that in the first seven months of 2023, Chinese electric vehicle shipments to the EU, so exports to the EU, soared by 7.9 billion US dollars, which is uh, an increase of 113% over last year. Or if you, you like your numbers bigger, 78,900% uh, over 2019 yeah. figures, right? So you can kind of get a sense oh for goodness. how quickly uh, that number has, has exploded over the last four or five years. Um, and I think von der Leyen was quite smart because she reminded European lawmakers that China has done this kind of, has rolled out this playbook before um, when they saturated the, the solar market, mm. the solar panel market um, in a very similar way, which back then, you know, five, 10 years ago, drove a lot of European solar companies out of business. So they've launched a, a trade probe. What happens if these investigators come back and, and God forbid, you know, find that China has been violating fair trade practices. Yeah, well, then you get this tit for tat, right? Uh, the EU countries would almost certainly impose import duties on China and China. If I know one thing, I can promise you China will respond with precisely the same duties um, very quickly. That's that's their playbook. Duty, duty versus duty never ends well. It will exactly, exactly. A race to the bottom of the duties. I say duty different to you, by, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but yeah, to, I, I don't think it's important to, to sort of just, you know, remind everyone that I don't think von der Leyen is concerned with Chinese industrial subsidies alone. It, she has a whole, you know, a whole suite of issues, but it's not just China. She's China gets the headlines, but we 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 kind of touched on this earlier in the year when the EU was really upset over President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, uh, giving subsidies to 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 U.S. companies. So she's being consistent in that way, right? I, I think I think that's one criticism that is unfair when people say that she's picking on China or she's unfairly calling out China. Um, but on the other hand, she's as you said, risking a trade war. Um, so you know that's a kind of a sign of her of her resolution. Uh, to be firm against China um, and how intent that she is on uh, supporting European domestic industries and not over relying on imports. Um, but again, everything everything has its butts here, and you know China China still has a lot of stuff that the EU is going to need. Lithium comes to mind. Um, the BMW is going to need that for their electric cars. So uh, I, I suspect this is going to be a, a back and forth that is going to be complex and mm. isn't over yet. What have we missed? I mean, we, we've, we've reached the, the end of the road on this, on this quote that's guided us so very well through this conversation. What are von der Leyen's other big priorities going into the last few months of her first term? Yeah, well, climate's always at the top of any right. European agenda. Um, they've got the goal of, well, the EU has the goal of carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, it seemed it was interesting that she seemed that she to say that she wouldn't push for more regulations. Um, she said that she that Europe had been pretty successful in shifting the climate agenda to being an ec economic one. Um, so that was that was interesting. And but there are other pieces too. AI regulation. Um, the EU has really been successful in large, uh, leading the charge on tech regulations, as we've discussed. Um, we you know I expect that to continue. I think the the overall takeaway of of her speech um, was the the this the idea that you started 
uh, this conversation with the idea that Europe is in just a super different place to where it was three, four, five years ago. It's more assertive. It's more confident. Um, it, it seems to have a much clearer view of the world and the future. Um, and it's more willing to defend its interests, um, which I think is important. It seems more unified internally, at least publicly. Who knows what goes on behind the scenes? Um, and I think Ursula von der Leyen is, is a, a much stronger leader than Europe's had before. Today's episode is sponsored by us. Yes, us, International Intrigue. The Intrigue team is heading up to New York City this month to cover the UN General Assembly, and we'll be publishing a daily newsletter featuring all the biggest stories from inside the building. If you love Intrigue and want to know more about how the world's leaders confront the biggest challenges of our time, climate change, free trade, the war in Ukraine, you'll absolutely love this newsletter. Check out the link in the show notes to sign up. All right. Welcome back. So, John, lots of world leaders are known as jet setters. It's one of the perks of the job. You know, you got your fancy presidential plans, helicopters, of course, limousines, but not North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. He likes to take uh, his train, his very special train. And he took one this week to Russia to meet with uh, President Putin for four hours, which was his first overseas travel since 2019. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you frame that nicely. He, yeah. he loves his he loves his little trains. Um, he very rarely travels. For, Hardly little. Well, it's not little, no, is it? No, I, I was I was emasculating him there. I, I must send Good. send him my apologies. Um, he, he yeah, you're right. He very rarely travels. Uh, I don't think he's getting a ton of invites. Um, and he almost never flies. I think he might have flown to Singapore when he met former President Trump back in uh, whenever that yeah. was. Um, but most of the time he uses this armored train, which you correctly say is not little. It's got bulletproof windows, assault weapons, escape helicopter, you know, a real a real Bond villain kind of uh, um, contraption. Um, his father, I think, also hated to fly. Uh, he took an armored train to Moscow once from Pyongyang, which is 20,000 20, kilometers, I think. Uh, took, took almost a month. <laughs> Um, so, so he, the, the North Korean leaders have form on this, um, his trip this time, Kim Jong-un's trip this time was a bit quicker, uh, cause he met president Putin at a Vostoshny Cosmodrome in Russia's far East. Um, basically kind of three day North of Pyongyang in Russia's far East. Before we, before we continue on with the story, I mean, uh, just real quick on the trains, both Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-il's father, Kim Il-sung are buried next to their train cars. Uh, sort of like, you know, Mongolian warriors buried with their horses. <laughs> um, so the, the train culture, as someone that believes that we need to invest more in, in public transit, I have to say the North Koreans might be on to something. Bulletproof windows, assault weapons <laughs> on Amtrak's. Yeah, right. Hey, whatever it takes to get people on board. Uh, John, no introduction needed here for our, our two protagonists. What were they there to talk about, though? Well, we, as always with these kinds of countries, we don't know. We, we, can, we can speculate, but we don't know. Um, you know, analysts say that Kim probably agreed to tap into North Korea's what we assume are enormous stockpiles of artillery, shells, small arms, munitions, these kinds of things. Obviously, Russia needs that because it's running short on, on, uh, uh, on artillery shells to fund to, in, in its war in Ukraine. Um, and Putin probably agreed to send North Korea things that it needs, which are food, obviously, medical aid. And here's what we don't know, but we speculate 
on. It's things like helping uh, North Korea build satellites, submarines, highly advanced weapons, things that need technology that North Korea has traditionally struggled to develop. Um, I, I noted that when when he was asked by a reporter if Russia would help uh, North Korea to launch its own satellites and rockets, Putin responded that that's exactly why we came here. So yeah. that's that's a good tell. Yeah, that's about the most publicly available information we have from from the meeting. But John, what what makes this significant? I mean, it's not surprising. We've been hearing for months from Western intelligence mm-hmm. officials that North Korea has been supplying Russia with weapons to support its war effort. So what makes this this meeting, this partnership, so worth watching? Well, I think what's interesting is the storylines that kind of emerge from it. The way that particularly the Western media, because that's where you know it's being covered fairly, fairly uh, strongly – the narratives that emerge, I think, are the interesting bits. So first, there's this this idea or this narrative that I've seen of, you know, it was once the Soviet Union that was propping up and defending North Korea and sending weapons to uh, to, to North Korea during the Korean War. Um, now it's the opposite. It's North Korea. This little hermit kingdom is supplying its great giant empire neighbor with with um, artillery shells, and that's you know potentially that's embarrassing for Russia. Um, and, it, and I think it definitely shows how isolated Russia has become on the world stage in, in two and a half years. Um, and I think it shows also that Russia's foreign policy now is absolutely dominated by executing its war in Ukraine. Um, you know, things that may have been priorities before are now being kind of subsumed by the idea that we need to keep getting shells, we need to keep you know prosecuting our war. Um, not for nothing, purchasing weapons from North Korea is a violation of UN law, um, which Russia, as a as a member of the of the Permanent Five and the Security Council, was responsible for passing. But I don't think that's a, a high on uh, President Putin's concerns right now that he's breaking a law he helped write. Um, but I think that's the second narrative, right? And I think that this is a, the idea that Russia was at least somewhat constructive on global efforts to restrict North Korea's nuclear program in the past. You know, I wouldn't say it was a, a reliable ally, but it, it 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 has been involved in that idea of that nuclear nuclear weapons in Korea would not be a good thing. That's probably not going to be the case going forward because Kim Kim's going to have a whole lot of leverage over President Putin, right? And, and not for nothing, Russia was involved in the Iran nuclear talks, and you know we've seen that relationship grow in, in a similar way. Exactly, and just like with Iran, I think. I think this could help insulate North Korea from international pressure. Russia is, you know, f- you know, whether you like it or not, still a pretty big hitter on the geopolitical, uh, dip- diplomatic international stage. Um, so now they've got Russia and China on their side, presumably. North Korea, things could loosen up for North Korea is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Um, and I guess that's the third thing that is interesting about this is that you know, Kim Jong-un has been a, an international pariah for a while now, really since he came to power. Putin is 100% there with him now. Um, neither of them are able to travel freely around the world. You know, we just saw Putin not go to South Africa in case he'd be arrested. Kim Jong-un can't really leave Korea. Um, but just because they're isolated, I think we're now starting to get this sense that just because they're isolated, it doesn't mean the world shouldn't take them seriously. You know, they both have enormous militaries, nuclear arsenals, and if they start collaborating and working together, it's something that everyone should be paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these two are made for each other. Paranoid, yes. Diplomatically weak, yes. <laughs> but, you know, no matter what, when these two guys get in the same room, they have enormous leverage that they can wield on the world stage, and we have to pay attention to it. And, and John, you know, 
just to finish things off, I think you and I are made for each other too. <laughs> <laughs> in the same se- in the same sentence as Putin and Kim Jong Un, I don't think you think that one through. <laughs> Take that as you will. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, do you believe in aliens? If you don't, you might want to see the evidence a UFO expert, aka a ufologist, presented to Mexico's Congress this week. Pretty convincing. But be sure to check it out at the International Intrigue newsletter for yourself. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. I'll see you for our special UN podcasts next week.